You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. Increasingly, your only source of independent conservative talk here at Conservative Review's Northern Command, right smack amidst Hell Week. And this really is like Hell Week for uh, those of us trying to cover all that's important. And I, I apologize ahead of time for not being able to get to all the issues we want to. There's just, you know, between the courts having its grand finale for the 2019 term of the Supreme Court, between everything going on at the border, between obviously you have everyone going to be focused this week on the Democrat debates, you know, because of course all they care about, even in the conservative media is the Democrats. They don't have any vision of their own. A lot of things are going to slip through the crack, but I promised you last week we would have Colonel Dan Steiner on to discuss Iran and everything surrounding Iran, everything going on. On the one hand, if you look at what's going on broadly, it seems to track very closely with what's going on at the border. Hence, we look extremely weak. The president goes and draws lines in the sand like Obama did, and then he doesn't execute them. Um, just like he said, hey, I'm going to shut the border. Oh, well, I'm not. I'm going to have armed soldiers at the border after the Mexicans attacked them. Well, I'm not. Um, I'm going to finally implement current law and deport those illegal aliens that at least have final deportation orders. Well, I decided I'm going to give Democrats more time to negotiate. So he saw a similar thing with Iran last week. The president bizarrely saying, and I never remember this in the history of our country, tweeting out that I was in the middle of an operation and planes were flying to respond to Iran, but they didn't. So look, on the one hand, you got Iran attacks a couple weeks ago, two oil tankers with, with mines. They're getting more and more belligerent. Um, the president went ahead and he actually drew a line in the sand and he said they're going to really regret this attack. He said that after the attack of the oil tankers and then they went in and directly attacked our air asset shooting down a drone a couple days later in international airspace. And the president claims there was an attack, claims it was called off because he didn't want to kill too many people. And then here we are where on the one hand, he looks extremely weak, but on the other hand, he so far has not backed down from sanctions. Sanctions are crushing Iran. Um, Some items are going up five tenfold in terms of inflation. And today, the administration did announce a new round of financial sanctions on top IRGC officials. We'll talk about that a little bit. And then on the other hand, as well, we have the news that America launched a major cyber offensive attack to totally shut down Iran's missile defense. Well, that looks like it's very strong. Or is there more to it? So it's a little bit confusing. There's some things where the president looks strong. There's some things he looks weak. 
Um, I'm a lot more confident in my diagnosis of what's going on on the border. I haven't followed this as closely, and that's why we are bringing in a true expert. Colonel Dan Steiner, we've had him on the show a number of times. We've quoted him in our articles. He is a retired Air Force colonel, 32 years in the Air Force. He he dealt with air ground defense primarily. Um, he spent, spent a lot of time in CENTCOM from Operation Desert Shield through 2003 before he, he was brought back back to Texas to run the Texas military forces for Governor Rick Perry. So he's got the border experience. He's got Latin American experience. He's got experience in Kosovo, but he's got a lot of experience in the Middle East as well. And he has his own blog. He has his own podcast now that I want you guys to subscribe to. We're going to link to in show notes. Um, But for today's briefing, we bring you Colonel Dan Steiner. Hey, Colonel, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Dan. And I, I was tickled to hear you're actually going to take a vacation. Yeah, you know, I'm really trying to jam it in this week because uh, I just can't take it anymore. Every year I go away the July 4th week, and I'm telling you, Colonel, I know they're going to try stupid stuff when I'm gone. <laughs> they're, they're just don't go. Oh, I, I mean, there's no I one guarding the gates. That's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, there's no one guarding the gates. I mean, and, and, and you know, I just want to make a point before we start. Um. To this week is like the Super Bowl for my colleagues. Oh, 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 the Democrat debates, the Democrat debates. And I'm thinking every single day that Republicans control a branch of government, and certainly when they controlled all three branches for the first two years of this administration, and continuously now when they control the executive branch, every day is debate day for conservatives, or should be. Where there is a an inflection point on policy, whether it's the border, whether it's healthcare, whether it's spending, whether it's any portfolio policy, where we could influence this administration in a various department or or office or agency, expose what's going on. You should go in this direction, influence the direction of our country and what matters, and ultimately influence elections. And they're nowhere to be seen. The minute you have Democrat debates, over which. Conservative media has zero influence of the outcome, nor do we really care which one emerges. Suddenly, they're all in. That, that just pisses me off. And one of the areas where we need a vision on is generally in foreign policy. What is a strategic threat? What's a strategic interest? Why is it an interest? How do we defend it? What's the risk versus return matrix? What should we be doing? What shouldn't we be doing? We're trying to do this. So in order to get to that point on Iran, I want you to start off just giving us a dumbed-down version of just a briefing of the last month, an overview of what Iran's been doing um, and, and why it matters. Yeah, I, I, I will tell you that last week was probably, so far, the apex of a, of a rather not only perplexing but disturbing trend we seem to have coming from our country. You know, you have six ships in the region, the two that everybody talks about from a little over a week and a half ago. You had four three weeks before that, that that one kind of really blew over real quick, except for, you know, a couple of wicked tweets out there about better not do that again. And, uh, you know, the, the tweeter policy, um, <laughs> it, you've had a, a dramatic increase in the amount of proxy fighter activities taking place towards Saudi Arabia. Um, 
it, it just amazes me that we have seen the Iranian leadership, the mullahs, I, I call them the old men in Tehran, take a dramatic increase in their activities. And it, it seems like, at least to most of the outsiders that pay attention, it seems like our response to everything they've done for the last month, month and a half, is just absolutely helter-skelter. And it, if it seems confusing to the American public, I, I will tell you, from my perspective, it's not helter-skelter to the old guys in Tehran. It's, it's opportunity knocking. It, it is emboldening. It is encouraging that they are absolutely beating us upside the head in the perception game. I told you, I guess a while back, I've been talking to some friends. I've got some old friends over there, and I just love to hear their opinion. And, you know, hand down, their opinion is, is that the Iranian leadership is making the United States look stupid. And, and I think I sent you, Dan, that little video clip of what they thought of, you know, the, the president's talk about somebody made a big mistake. It was probably a general. And then there's some Arabic writing on there. And that all transcribes into them basically making fun of him. And that is the rhythm of what yeah. Tehran is putting out right now is that they, they are virtually sitting there making fun of us. Now, the sanctions are hurting them. The, the, one of the reasons they are so desperate is we have hurt them terribly in the sanctions arena. But there's nobody that's pro-government in Tehran that's starving to death. It, it's the population. But if you had to look at it over a month and a half period, you'd have to say the Iranians are like 5-0 and oh, and we're 0-5. Oh and, and that's mm. just mind-boggling to me and i think it's important for people to know you were on the show uh you know about six weeks ago to discuss iran last time you were on we were talking about the border but you we had you on to discuss iran and you literally predicted this you said you know you didn't like the direction we were headed you thought we were being weak they kept upping upping the ante and you said they're going to go and challenge us even more and at the time when you said that, I thought that, look, if they would have gone after an American asset, you know, these are Saudi Arabian or foreign ships sailing under another flag going through the Straits of Hormuz, but if they go after our asset, we're going to respond. Well, Trump, again, made the threat against them if they attack again. This was just attacking anyone. And then they attacked us. And look, it's not as bad as having a dozen of our sailors with their hands up captured by iran like under obama and we do nothing about it but you know we do look pretty weak and you you predicted that so i think we're certainly seeing that um i'm trying to get a sense of again i want to balance things out here um we do have to give him credit for standing by the sanctions so the latest news i want you to help us i saw um You know, the AP article, it came out, um, I guess, today, or yes, really yesterday, that U.S. struck Iranian military computers this week, that that Cyber Command 
had a very effective attack that that essentially essentially shut down their computers for their missile defense system. Now, I thought that meant all right, well the president, you know, was weak in pulling back the attack, but then, you know, this is what he did instead. But but you we spoke earlier today and you said that this in fact might have been residual from the original attack that went through. Could you explain that? Yeah, and I think I wrote about this in my blog and uh, a couple of days ago. But here, here, here's what bothers me, Dan. It, when you're going to finally choose a course of action with the combatant command, so so Central Command finally came to the president and his national security team and said, "Okay, here here are four or five course of action we can take based upon your guidance that you want to do something." and reprisal to what has just happened with this drone in relationship to the tankers and the perceptions that we truly are not willing to protect the Straits of Hormuz. And when those course of actions go on the table, someone chooses one, and then they either ask questions about it or they want further guidance on it. But when it's all said and done, you pick one. And if they picked one, and this one entailed aircraft, cruise missiles, and, and some other things, non-boots-on-the-ground type of operations, and you go back and you prep for that, and you, as a combatant commander at CENTCOM, you, you make notification to your commander-in-chief, we're ready. We're, we're, we're ready to execute. And then, as the story goes, and now you know, the president says he didn't do this, but as the story goes, as the way the Arabs believe it in the Middle East, and this is what's important, it's not so much that President Trump has come back and said, no, 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 I didn't do that. It, that that's false news. Well, in the arena where your enemies live, the perception is you did change your mind, that the old men in Tran, they, they, they backed you down. But here's what tactically scares me about that. So this course of action gets is chosen. And in that course of action, as I had said before, you're, you're, we're in an era now where you're going to start to see some things happening in, in conflict and in warfare that you have not seen before. And this is because the realm of cyber is becoming so prevalent. And it's very, it's very well known that Trump, in his term, to his credit, is starting to let the world know some of our cyber capabilities. And let me tell you, God is my witness, we have capabilities that are unbelievable. Yeah, I'm very heartened. I'm very heartened by this. It it appears that we were in the process of using some of those capabilities in a precursor operation to the actual kinetic operation. So think of it this way. If you're going to do an air campaign against an enemy, then classically you're going to have suppression missions that take place. Now in the Air Force, you know, you used to have things like the wild weasel missions, which were these F-4 Phantoms and then the F-15s, and they go in and they suppress, kind of like you see the IDF doing now at a much smaller scale in Syria. They suppress and destroy the capability of your enemy to attack the inbound attack that you're going to see. So first thing you do is you suppress. So in this environment, to me, and I won't swear this is the truth, but it concerns me this could be true. We used our cyber capabilities to do that suppression mission. 
And so phase one of this response could have taken place, suppression. And it we suppressed their systems electronically to where who knows how well they could have responded to aircraft and cruise missiles and other short-range ballistic weapons showing up on the scene. Now, the price you pay for that is if you don't follow through with it, if you really do suddenly decide, no, we're not going to do this, call them back. And and, and I have some indications out there that it did get called back. We won't go into that. Colonel, that's that's another thing I did want to get into. You know, because the and and I want to finish this train of thought, but as soon as I saw the president tweet that out, oh, I I changed my mind midway, and uh, I yeah you know, I figured I don't want to kill too many of your people. So I mean, look, no president has ever talked like that publicly. So the first thing that came to my mind is maybe the whole thing was just BS, and this was you know typical Trump like you know playing with them and yeah you know. But but you're saying you think it's true. Well, well, and I'll tell you something else. I think it's worse than that, Dan. I think we can get to that in a minute, but. I think the thing I want to hammer home to you and your and your listeners is if we used a cyber capability to defeat his ADA, his air defense artillery, air defense operations that he would have classically used against us, and then we did not fly the missions against him to physically take those sites out and then to go physically strike the targets we were talking about, Whatever that network that was used to do that, it is now known. Mm. So if you attacked a system cyber-wise, what kind of attack was it? How did it come in? What did it do to us? And if you use that, what I said in my blog is if you use that silver bullet, but then there's no fight behind it, then you've wasted that silver bullet. Wow. Now, that doesn't mean we can't come back in a different fashion. Sure. And and that doesn't mean that it's not going to be effective next time. But there are times in the development of weapon systems throughout history that you don't let your adversary know about it until you use it. You know, there was a great debate before Desert Storm started on whether to use the F-117s or not. Did we really want that particular battlefield, which in reality, we didn't really need to use them. Um, did we want the Russians and the Chinese, but specifically the Russians at that point in time, to know the capabilities of the F-117s on something such as, you know, a third world military inside of, uh, uh, another country? I, I, it was contentious to use them. Now, we used them, and the world knew about them, once we use them. So think about that analogy. If we did something against Iran to press the battlefield for this attack and then did not attack, then whatever we did, we can assume the planners and the developers can assume some level of understanding of what we did has gotten out. And to me, that's significant. Now, I haven't heard anybody talking about that. And inside the Beltway, they probably won't talk about it. But, but I'm not inside the Beltway, and, and that, that's not a classified statement, so the heck with them. I'm going to tell you and your listeners, we, we could have really screwed up last week. And when I say we, I mean our leadership. If you do this helter-skelter on, off, on, off, you know, 
somehow we could have really messed up some of our future capabilities. And that's not to say our cyber program is worthless now, because from what, what we were going to do, you know, interrupting con- command and control computer networks for uh, automated guidance systems on missile systems, that's not even the tip of the iceberg of what we can do. But sure. we have exposed the fact that when we come, we're going to do that to you now. So you can bet your bottom dollar that if they, when they, and I want to emphasize this, when they have their next event, they will anticipate if we come after them, a preparatory cyber event against command and control networks. And they will, like any, any enemy does, they will adapt to that. Yep. And so we have tipped our hand in this whole thing. Holy and, smokes. And that's a significant thing we need to think about. I never thought about that. Um, so just to bring this back to ground level, when I read the AP article that we, we struck them, um, U.S. Cyber Command struck their missile defense systems and, and grounded them to a halt to a certain extent, I thought that was like instead of the attack... I wasn't reading carefully. I thought that was, oh, yeah, you know, it was a way of Trump doing, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 the next best thing because he was too scared to attack them. And you're saying, no, we would never use a silver bullet just, just in jest. And that was part, that was the preparatory uh, stage for the kinetic attack. And whereas he called back the actual strike but the cyber attack is instantaneous and that wasn't couldn't be called back so then we just left it out there we shot the bullet into the air for nothing yes if you had pre-planted code in their software systems and you launched the message to activate that code to cripple systems now they can forensically go back and say, what happened to us and how did that happen? Because as an enemy, they're going to ensure that that doesn't happen again. So did you damage the missile? Did you physically do damage to systems? Did you do things that SCADA software would have hurt the missiles? Most likely not. What you did is you you interrupted the software that drives all the machinery. Well, the way you solve that, the way we solve it is you yank that laptop out and bring a fresh laptop in, and you just make sure that you've taken software precautions. So whatever we did was going to have a limited window of opportunity. It, it's not like it's been a week and a half now, and their ADA, their air defense system still don't work. That, that There's no way sure. that's true. So it, it was a... It was a suppression mission to make sure that when you physically went into harm's way with, you know, manned aircraft, that they were in a much safer environment mm. if those systems weren't able to lock, you know, lock on, track, and fire. Wow. Okay, so it's all about the element of surprise um, for kinetic attack, and now you lost the element of surprise, and you didn't have the attack, and you don't have the deterrent, and they know more than ever we're reluctant as heck to um, get pulled in there. So, which leads us to the next thing: you're in Iran. You, you you're 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 a mullah. You you just referenced 
not if, but when there's the next event. Do you see them closing the Straits of Hormuz, or is there something in between? Well, yeah. I mean, you've seen them mess around with Iraq a little bit. You've seen them, you know, this Katushka rockets by some of their proxy fighters, some of their Shia militia groups that are firing into areas where our uh, trainers are in Iraq. That hasn't gone on a lot for a long time. Now that has kicked up a little bit. Now, the, the danger zone is there's one of those Katushkas does hit a, a camp, and you you do end up getting 10, 15, 20 guys injured and killed. You know, then I don't know where Trump goes after that. I, I, forcing him to play a card when they know he's reluctant, and he's extremely reluctant before this whole Bahrainian sit down and the, the, the deal of the century. <laughs> he doesn't want to be untrue to his word and his campaign as he gets into yet another campaign about staying out of these never ending conflicts over there. So everything about the picture that we're painting for them is they can push the envelope. And I'm and Dan. I want to make another point here. As, as you say that, you know, the story when I read it was that the president found that he he asked the combatant commander, "How many guys are going to die in this?" And, and, and I worked at CENTCOM, and and I'm sitting there thinking, well, two things happened that day I thought were really bizarre. One, you had the the uh, Air Force three star come on and give this very uncoordinated telephone interview about what happened with the drone. And, you know, that comes out of the Air Operations Center. And, and that guy, when he was asked to do that, he probably thought, what? I mean, that that is so unusual hmm. to make that guy get on the phone and talk to the press. That was bizarre. I think that shows you how much of a panic they were in to try and explain where they were in the whole situation. But if you get on the phone with the CENTCOM commander and you say, I need to know how many people were about to kill, I, I can tell you the safest thing a four-star is probably going to actually ever say is, sir, I can't tell you that. I have no idea. Because the enemy gets a vote on what they do after we attack. Now, if you're asking me how many we're going to kill in our attack based upon the target sets that we're going after, and, and realize once a mission starts, Dan, your your intelligence gathering mechanism is full speed. Things that are looking to see how the operation's going to go are now totally committed. You are no longer in a mode of collecting information about potential targets two or three times a day. You are side on, you know, orderly. You you have gotten dialed in for a fight. So you're collecting signal intelligence, you know, satellite intelligence, human intelligence. You are dialed in to this because you're getting ready to conduct an operation. So to make an estimate of taking out 150 people, I, I, I don't know why in the world a combatant command would say that. But somehow that back in D.C., back in the White House staff, you know, that became the talking point. Well, the reason I turned it off is because. I heard 150, and I didn't want to kill 150 because <laughs> all I did was shoot down a drone. Well, I, I, let me tell you why I think it got turned off. And, and I can't prove it. Sure. But I'll tell you how a battle rhythm typically works. A question may have been asked 
if we do this, then what? And when the answer came back, because you're gathering intelligence real time, you're getting ready to kick a mission. And in, in the process of kicking that mission, your C2, your intelligence people come to you as a commander and they say, hey, sir, we now have indications that the Iranians are fueling mid, mid-range missiles. The Iranians are now putting uh, several ships to sea out of port. They're, they're getting off the docks. They're, they're doing everything that indicates to us that they are, one, preparing for an attack, and two, they are going to retaliate in a way that is disproportional to what we're about to do. Now, as a combatant commander, you now have to make a decision. I need to call the boss and say, are you sure you want to do this? Because mm. it appears like these guys are going to punch back, and they're going to punch back disproportionately to what you've asked me to do a 20% response. It appears they're getting ready for a 60% response. That kind of event is easily what can make someone inside the political arena say, whoa, 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 stop everything. If you're telling me that they're getting ready to send medium-range missiles to Saudi Arabia and they're getting ready to really start pounding ships out in the Straits of Hormuz, that's not what we're looking for. Now, here's the problem, Dan. The people that know if that's true or not sit in two places, Tehran and D.C. That's where they are. And if Tehran's sitting there going, okay, look, we knew they were coming. We have our spies in the UAE. We have our spies up and down the Gulf Coast, we know when they're generating aircraft. We, we can tell when the United States is getting ready to do something. That's just a given. And then they stopped. And they had to stop because they saw us getting ready as well. And they changed their mind. There, there's nothing that emboldens a desperate, tyrannical government more than that action. And and that action, unfortunately, almost guarantees you the next event. So then and let that's me an ugly statement. So then let me play devil's advocate here. So then you know, could you say Trump was right? Not to go through it. I mean, one of the things that I sympathize with Trump, and I don't have much sympathy with him on the border policy, but with this, the, the problem that he's up against is this. And this is what I want you to break for us, this logjam of, of how we find a path towards um, peace through strength, being having a strong deterrent, and not getting sucked into things we don't want to get sucked in. Because he's inheriting 18 years of garbage, 18 years of pissing away trillions of dollars, uh, thousands of lives, tens of thousands of injuries, refereeing Islamic civil wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, among many other places in Africa now. Um, and, you know, additionally, we've actually flung out our troops in a very precarious situation throughout Syria and, and, and Iraq. 
downright helping the Iranians, which to Trump's credit, he genuinely did want to end that and pull out of that. But instead, you know, he got all this flack from the military commanders, so he decided to stay. But now that they stay, ironically, when you finally reach the point where we do need to engage, where Iran does threaten the shipping lanes and our national interests, where we don't have to own, I mean, when you're talking about air and sea, you're not talking about people. You're talking about water and air. There's no Islamic civil wars. There's no domestic insurgency. We could do strike and maneuver. Well, I'm too scared to do strike and maneuver because it's going to undermine our um, nation building and uh, um, helping Iran and in, in the Shiite militias in Iraq against the Sunni insurgency and put our soldiers in danger. I mean, is that what you're saying, that, that in fact he was scared of the, them being attacked? So, I mean, isn't Trump in a tough position then? Well, he's in, a, he's in absolutely no-win position. If, you, if you're combat commander, CENTCOM commander informs you that he does not have the force density to respond in a manner that will ensure the safety of our people and our allies based upon what he is seeing as the impending response to a limited attack. Once he understood that, he's obligated as a commander to say to the president, sir, I, if they do what it appears like they are going to do, I do not have the structure in theater to defend our people to the right level. Now, that doesn't mean you don't want to fight. It just means you are not postured for the response that they were going to give. And and that makes it very difficult in the political arena for Trump because it instantly makes it look like he backed down. To the, you know, to the mullahs, they bragged that he backed down, kind of like that cartoon I sent you that they put out about, you know, even a mother doesn't make so many excuses for their daughter. But the commander, who really doesn't give a damn about the politics of D.C. at that moment in time, he is going to be brutally honest when he says, I can't do what I need to do based on what I have in theater. Because I now have my intelligence people telling me what it looks like they're going to do in retaliation. I can't defend, you know, the East Coast oil fields of Saudi Arabia. I can't defend the air bases in the UAE and in Qatar. Um, you know, I, none of that can take place. So when he made that honest statement, excuse me, and this got turned off. How do you fix that politically? I think that's where this all got screwed up. And the half-ass answer that came out was, well, you know, I didn't want to see 150 dead. <laughs> well, I, I guarantee you, CINCOM didn't come up with that answer. What they did is they told the tactical and strategic truth, and then the administration came up with what the answer needs to be. Now, how do, how do, you, <coughs> excuse me, how, how do you get out of this? You know, so you got to go back to FinCon commander and you got to say, okay, here's your orders. You need to protect our people at all costs. 
do you anticipate that they are going to take further action? He's going to know that because he has the best intelligence. He has the battlefield-level intelligence made available to him. So, so that, that's where I wanted to take it. Based on what you're telling me, if I'm the Iranians, I know this is BS. I know Trump was really not, oh, I didn't want to beat them up too much and kill too many of their people. It's really the opposite. He was too scared to do it. So I'm going to take this a, a level further. I'm going to take this a step further. So if you're a colonel, you're still at CENCOM, and you're advising General McKenzie and his deputy, Lieutenant General Bergeson, who is an, who's an Air Force guy, what would you be telling them? What sort of posture, potential strike pa- um, package assets would you put in the field what assets would you shore up defensively in preparation for something like that well you 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 go you the mode you never stop is the mode of defensive operations even during an offensive operation your defensive operations so in Sencom there's there's this whole branch called the joint security directorate and there's this there's that that's one of the directorates I was actually in and in that directorate of CENTCOM, your constant job is not to not to execute offensive operations. Your constant job is to defend everything that's already in theater. What does it take to make sure that everything that's in theater that can come under threat to be adequately defended? So some of this additional thousand troop thing you heard about last week on this deployment almost assuredly was increased defensive operations. Mm. The second thing you've got to do, and this is a separate group of people, you have to figure out, okay, assumption number one, the Iranians are going to do something else, either through a proxy fighter or their own forces. Most likely they're proxy fighters. What is it? Where is it? When is it? And how do we mitigate it? And so that that starts grinding away as you speak. And if you've hit six tankers and we've done nothing, then the tanker issue is a soft target. You know, it's kind of like baseball. If I keep bunting and you can't beat the bunt, then I might as well just keep bunting the ball. So, so you don't so you, you don't necessarily see them doing something like closing the straights <laughs> if they could keep doing what they're doing now. Well, it, it, here we go. It depends on their pain factor. If, if nothing they are doing is making Europe try and pressure us, because this is really all about Europe pressuring us to sit down at the table and talk to them. If, if they're not achieving that, then they have to do something more drastic. Ah. But it's a fine line. It's a fine so, line. So, between- so, 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 I'm sorry to interrupt because I just want to bring this back to our listeners just, just to get this straight. You're, you're throwing a lot of, lot of good stuff, a lot of good, good information here. So you're saying on the one hand, the administration has been pretty resolute in holding the line on the sanctions. But on the other hand, they've been pr- pretty weak in backing up those sanctions with military deterrent in the face of Iran challenge us in an effort to get the Europeans to, um, you know, get us to relent, come back to the table, which is why we saw after the um, oil tankers were attacked, I mean, the German foreign minister, the Europeans like, we have no evidence. We have no evidence that, that, that Iran did this because um, it was all they were an arm of, of Iran, right? Yeah. Well, 
to them, to the to the old guys in Tehran, we're in a state of confusion in the United States right now. We're entering a, a, our political season once again, so that's going to even get worse. But to Europe, they look at Europe like it's run by a bunch of Teletubbies. And, and so the best way you get Europe to do what you need to do is you scare the hell out of them. And, and you just you just said it. They, they they've done exactly that. You know they they have made the European think. Oh Lord, you know if we don't find a way to get the U.S. to calm down, then this is going to get out of control. So it, it's not about Europe unifying with us and saying to Iran, "Your time is up. You need to either comply or face a travesty." This is about Europe looking at us going, okay, Trump's crazy. He's pushing this too far. You know, this suddenly becomes all about Trump and not about the mullahs. And, and they bank on that because they look at the climate that we are in in this country. You know, this constant pounding that if, if the sun comes up on a cloudy day, it's Trump's fault. It, it, they're, pl- they're leveraging the disunity in this country and scaring the hell out of Europe at the same time, and it's Dan, it's working. <laughs> I mean, but but, but can we can we do that back to Iran with the sanctions? In other words, a lot of people thought, as you said, with the sanctions damaging the people and not the echelon, so the people would like march in the street, death to America. I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing when they march in the street, they're against the mullahs. No, no, and, and I follow a couple folks over there, good good people. Who are, are are ready for change? I mean, the, the public of Iran is not in love with the mullahs, and they're too young. You know, when you kill off most of your population, either in a war or it, when you're demographically a fairly young country, and, and they're on the internet and they're watching how the rest of the world gets to live, and you don't get to live that way, you're going to have social social issues. You're, you're going to have that Arab Spring kind of fever lurking in the corners over there. But the way you, the way to trigger all of that is, is, is probably pretty complex because one, you're talking about a public that's unarmed. You know, we go back to this issue of why we can never surrender our Second Amendment rights here, and, and two, you're talking about a government that doesn't think twice about suppressing its people. Right now, their charge is to to terrorize Europe into begging us to come back to the table and, and have some level of conversation. And, and, and with Trump, I don't think it's going to work. But now the clock's running. You know, you, now if they start to smell the air and they, and they sense that Trump may not make it in 2020, they can drag this out. They can go dormant for a little while. You know, the mullahs aren't going to starve to death in the next 18 months. And if the people can't march on Tehran and take down the government, if you can't get the military to turn against them, the rank and file of the military to turn against them, then you can outlive Trump. And you've got a great victory. And, you know, in 2019, you went nose to nose with the U.S. and they backed down. And in the eyes of the Middle East, even with our allies last week, we backed down. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. So you're uh, you're Trump's advisor. Um, given what you know, what sort of mix of soft power and hard power would you pursue or not pursue with what end goal? Is the end goal ultimately 
not necessarily battering them by doing airstrikes, but the removal of the regime through soft power. Well, and you know me, you you, you and I've had this conversation before, and this is how Dan Steiner attacked this problem. Behind this puppet, this unwilling puppet, at the top of those strings is Moscow. Now, that puppet doesn't like to dance on those strings because the mullahs can't stand the Russians. But the fact of the matter is the fate of the Iranians in a conflict resides with Moscow. And Moscow is still upset over Eastern Europe and the expansion of NATO. So if you notice, there was this sit down between the U.S., the Russians and the Israelis in Israel just prior to the big Bahrainian, you know, economic show that Boy Wonder's putting on. You have to go to Moscow. You have to sit down and say, this is not going to continue. If someone was making a fool out of you, Mr. Putin, you would take action. Do you really believe, you know, Trump can sit there and say, do you really believe I'm going to sit back and have the mullahs continuously make me look like an idiot and have MSNBC and CNN and every Democratic Yahoo out there talking about how I screwed this all up going into an election year? So you and I got to come to an understanding. So this is good. This is going to stop. And it can either stop uncontrollably or it can stop with consensus between the two of us. And then I give him what I want to do. I give him my off-ramp. And I go after the IRGC and the Al-Quds forces in Syria and Iraq. And I, don't, and I tell the Russians, I'm not talking boots on the ground. I'm not talking nation-state rebuilding. I'm talking about they're going to fear me. They're going to fear the nighttime. And I'm going to show them that I'm tired of them, but I'm not spending a dime on fixing anything when I'm done. Wait, wait a minute. That's interesting. So you're saying you wouldn't strike anything in Iran. You would strike their proxies. Right. Because without their proxies, they can't show their prowess. If, if their game is projection, if the mullahs are, we are, we are it between us and Iraq and Syria and Lebanon and the coastline, and we live under the umbrella of Moscow. If you go strike that deal with Moscow to say, when the dust settles, they're still your puppet. If you want to put you know, an IRGC commander in, in, in from guy in Tehran, I don't care. But the way we're going right now is not going to continue. And if I can't come to terms with you on this, then this is going to get out of control. So now, what, what, would, going to sit there. what would stop Putin from saying, so let it get out of control? You're a loser. You don't well, know. What to... it, it, doesn't, it doesn't serve his purpose. I mean, he, he can't control the environment. If it gets to that point. But what, what, what card do we have to play with him? I mean, why would he care? Well, here we go. Here we go with this whole thing. You know my battle drum. Here we go with this whole issue of NATO expansion. You go in there and what you talk about what Putin really wants. You know, I don't want to hear about NATO operations and NATO training exercises. I want you guys to slowly 
start decommitting to this entire NATO expansion, Ukraine, Poland, uh, all these things that we're doing that really tripped his trigger. You start talking to him about those issues, and then you start bordering. Okay, look, you're gonna you're gonna help me take this Mula operation out of Iran. We're gonna settle this issue in the region with what the Iranians have done. And then we're going to start really getting realistic. Remember what Trump always said? I don't see the, I don't see the need for NATO, blah, 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 blah. There's some real bargaining chips there and their chips. I think personally, he's willing to play anyway. How I'm willing <laughs> to play them. You're saying we don't need to die in the sort of Macedonia. Well, yeah. I mean, what are we doing? I mean, if we're pushing into Eastern Europe more and more, if, if we're in this process of violating what we told them we weren't going to do when the Soviet Union fell, what is that getting us? It's getting Europe something. It makes Europe feel more secure. But what in the world is Europe doing for us? Europe's the one that's screwing us on Iran. <laughs> Well, exactly right. And guess what? It's the Europeans in the U.N. who are forming up the convoys in South America to come across our border. So what are we <laughs> losing here? <laughs> I mean, well, wait a minute. And, and they're hard conversations, but we need real hard conversations <laughs> before we start spilling blood. That's a very interesting, circuitous connection there I never thought about. So, you know, we're in this predicament with Iran because the Europeans sell us down the river to Iran, yet you're saying we could end this by having Moscow pull the plug, and our biggest leverage with Moscow is NATO, yet we're taking that chess piece off the board in order to defend the very Teletubbies that are screwing us on the Iran issue that we need to redress with Russia. Did I get that right? You, you nailed it. Oh man! Um, wow. So that's that, that's interesting there. So you're very into into Moscow. Um, again, to just come back and you know into Moscow as as a means of redressing this in a backhanded way. Uh, but but to come back to more just the military forces. I I can't remember when we had this discussion. Maybe tell me if you don't know what I'm talking about. But I I, I remember one time I was talking to you about how I was always disturbed by the fact that we spent so many years investing in ground operations, which weren't really operations. They were, again, nothing but, you know, humanitarian work in a combat zone <laughs> that we get killed over, um, rather than investing in strike and maneuver, holding the line on a perimeter, drawing a line in a grid coordinate in you know, in, in airspace, in a sea, and saying, that is our interest, you will not get in it, and here's how we're going to defend it. Can you just explain what that would look like, what we should have been doing better in using air and sea superiority to defend these uh, shipping lanes and these assets we have in the Persian Gulf had we not pissed away our, our lives on the Sunnis and Shias on, on, on the land-based operations? Well, and it's a twofold, it's a twofold issue. We, we've sold a lot of things to some uh, so-called allies in the region. And one of my concerns, I think I've said this to you before, is 
when you sell very sophisticated weapons that have a very low probability of failure, and you sell them to countries that strategically don't have the best processes in place to make logical decisions before you use them, then you run the propensity of those countries using those weapons and quickly escalating a problem far beyond what you want it to be. I mean, you, you sell to Saudi Arabia anti-ship weapon, missiles that will not miss. And then they get to the point that they're tired of what's going on, and they take a shot at an Iranian tanker that they know is delivering these new cruise missiles into Yemen that are being fired now into Saudi Arabia, and they decide to sink that ship. Then you have a shooting match going on between Saudi and Iran. And that easily escalates into a situation to where whether you like it or not, you're involved in that fight. Now, you can stop that by happening by ensuring, one, the Saudi Arabians, as we had to do with the Israelis in Desert Storm, you don't need to do that. We, we are going to take actions now that ensures that the Iranian military commanders get the message. And I'll tell you, it, 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 yeah, it's a little bit of detente. It's a little bit of brinksmanship. But the next time these tankers have someone approaching one of them, and you can't identify who they are, and the Navy has an entire process for doing this. The United States Navy is second to none in doing in, intrinsic rings of defense in open water. And you put the word out that, hey, we are declaring, you know, defensive rings one, two, and three. This is where they are. And if you enter those rings, you will be sunk, period. And you put that word out, and then here comes your $300,000 fast boat with your 10 McHale's Navy-looking idiots with gear on that doesn't fit right, and you sink that thing, you've sent a pretty strong message. Now they have to decide, instead of us having to decide, they have to decide, okay, we're actually, no, no kidding, we're going to shoot at this American you know, frigate or, or whatever that's in that area, and then, you know, it's on like Donkey Kong after that, because every commander over there has the authority to defend themselves and our allies. So you've, you've got to shove this ball back into their court. And if that means you send some little, you know, McHale's Navy boat to the bottom of the Gulf, then you do it. But you got to be able to prove, because you saw this week what they're capable of doing. They have an information warfare campaign, Dan. They get their maps out. They were ready to go. You know, they never admitted one of their commanders made a mistake, and that's significant. You know, they, you know, Trump tried to give them an off-ramp with this. Well, a guy made a mistake. Hell, they had the commander of the IRGC within hours praising what they had done. That's not what you do when you have someone make a mistake. So there was no mistake made. That guy was ready to give that canned speech because that mission was planned. So if we get in that same mode of, all right, look, like we had to do in the 80s with the tankers. And the tanker escort business 
is not the answer. And we are definitely at a time. There's a lot more going on on immigration, tons going on. We're going to try to get to tomorrow's show. We're also going to have more court cases coming out on Wednesday, probably the census, probably, um, if not that, the redistricting case. I just want to say this, folks. You know, every last time an illegal alien dies at the hands of the cartels, it's blamed on our immigration laws and our border agents, when in fact it's the lack of enforcement that causes this all. But somehow all these virtue signalers, and I include people like Russell Moore, so-called religious leaders who should know better, and bastardize biblical values. Somehow they think that ignorance is a virtue. Somehow they think that they're ignorant, that if, if the Soros media doesn't report something, well, that defines morality. And let me tell you something. We're going to get into this more tomorrow. We're going to have a piece out on this. But it turns out that that accident in New Randolph, New Hampshire, where that trucker plowed into oncoming traffic of seven motorcyclists, ki- killing seven motorcyclists, and injuring three others it turns out he wasn't an illegal but he was an alien here on a green card and he had multiple multiple convictions and charges for driving drunk driving drugs and one conviction of larceny the larceny and drug conviction should have made him deportable yet because we don't enforce our laws property and we allow sanctuary cities and everything ice never knew about it And seven people are dead because current law, not a new law, current laws are not enforced. Edward Corr of Lakeville, Massachusetts, Joanne Corr of Lakeville, Massachusetts, husband and wife, Michael Ferrazzi, Albert Mazza, Desma Oaks, Aaron Perry, and Daniel Pereira of Riverside, Rhode Island are all dead. Thanks to the lack of enforcement, a hundred percent avoidable two to four times could have been de- deported. We'll try to get into that more if we have time tomorrow. Otherwise, I'll have a peace out. Send me your, your cases that you see in your area. There's so this stuff happens every day, goes unreported. Till next time, God bless y'all. Hey.